Welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast with your host, Scott McMahon. Hi, and welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast, filmmaking freedom for the independent. This is a podcast where we focus on making and selling your film for online self-distribution. A perfect way to get started is to pick up the book, How to Make and Sell Your Film Online and Survive the Hollywood Implosion, while doing it. It's available as a paperback, in Kindle ebook, as well as an audiobook. In fact, you can get the audiobook for free when you go to survivetheimplosion.com. When you go to that link, you can sign up with Audible for their free trial and get the book for free. Again, that's at survivetheimplosion.com. Now, for today's episode, we are going to focus on how do movies make money? How do they actually make money? And we're going to go through sort of reverse engineering it. Like, how does everyone get paid? How do people make their salary, make their fees? How do they make a profit? And we'll see how the Hollywood studio systems do it, how they get their money, how they make their money. And then we'll go into the accounting process of uh, Hollywood, the Hollywood math, to show you how they don't make money. (laughs) But we'll look into uh, distribution deals, how those are laid out, as well as how does all apply to the independent filmmaker and showing you sort of the three different worlds, the Hollywood uh, system, the independent or what we call indie Hollywood or the international film market world versus the uber independent filmmaker uh, and what is presented to them in terms of making money. And in a sense, we are following the money. That's a, you know, I use money a lot in this opening <laughs> uh, sec- segment of the podcast so far. But the whole point is just to get a really good understanding, the big picture of like how all this stuff works, and then decide where you fit into the whole scheme of things and whether or not what you're working on is working towards a goal that fits into the parameters of this this whole crazy business. But before we get into that, I want to take a page, a note out of my fellow podcasters format, where they sometimes share with you what they're working on. You know, just a quick update, like, hey, this is what I've been working on this week. And before they get into the actual interview or the actual show. So I thought that was kind of cool because it sort of just connects you a little bit to more about what I'm doing. On a part-time basis up here in Portland, Oregon, once in a while, you know, I, I work as an actor, a paid actor, and you know, work sometimes is really busy. A lot, you know, a lot of jobs come through, and other times it's <laughs> completely nothing goes on. But I've had a good year so far, and sometimes a job that you may have done in the past as an actor, you know, working on a national commercial, um, they come back and they want to reuse the same commercial. So what they do is they just issue a check again, for the same amount of work you did the first time. And those types of jobs, if you can get them on a regular basis, obviously, are fantastic. And so that was a little happy um, bit of news that came through this past week. On the Film Trooper side, um, way back in episode number 118, I had an interview with Brooks Elms, who's been a past guest many times, and we were workshopping this concept of how to find your next movie concept. And those of you who've been following me uh, have seen that, you know, I've written a script a while back, and then I performed it and shared that with you and then had the, the script workshopped with my other fellow podcasters. And in a sense, they were my brain trust group, taking it from the Pixar process, you know, creating a community of people to help hammer the story to make it better. Well, the first attempt of making the story was, you know, met with lukewarm sort of uh, reaction, which was good because it meant that, thank God I didn't make the film. If I made the film, people were like, yeah, it was all right, you know, could have been better. So to make it better, I have to go back to the beginning stage, which is to rework the story. So there was supposed to be a part two to the episode number 118, because it was called How to Find Your Next Movie Concept Part One with Brooks Elms. And there never was a part two, because I've taken all those notes from Brooks and our conversation 
and I've been working on the new story or revising it to make it stronger. And I'm actually turning it into a book, so a novelization. So instead of just writing the script and then just making the movie, I've decided that I would love to take the story and take sort of the script treatment version of it that I've been writing, but turn it into a novel. And it's not like a 300-page, heavy-duty, tons-of-writing-type novel. It's just going to be an easy-to-read hopefully 175, 180 pages uh, story that's just easy to digest. By releasing the book first, that's the strategy, I hopefully can gather an audience together for the material. That it, And again, what's cool about it is that the material is not directed towards other filmmakers. So it's not like, hey, I made a movie and then I start promoting it to other filmmakers. This is a an opportunity to make a story about a paranormal thriller, supernatural genre and hit a targeted audience that likes stories like that. And then I will also share all this stuff with you guys as I go down the process. But that's where I'm doing right now, um, on top of the acting stuff, uh, working with Film Trooper, and working on this story, basically turning into a book. And it's been super fun. I, it's just super liberating that we're in this age now that any of us can just make anything. We can make a movie. We can make a whole music album. We could write a book and then put it online and sell it. So I'm excited by all those opportunities, and I will keep you posted. Okay, now that that bit of business is uh, put aside, we can move on to the topic of how do movies make money. And before we plunge into the depths of this particular topic, let's explore how the artists, the craftsmen, and the executives make their money. And we can start with the stars. Hollywood movie stars usually make their money from big payouts. And for a select few, they actually get to share in the profits of the film. And you know what? And that's it. (laughs) that's how they make their money when they're working in the film business. You know, if a movie fails to perform at the box office, it doesn't impact the stars as much because they still get paid their fee and they move on to the next project. Out of curiosity, we can look at the cast of the Avengers Age of Ultron. Let's look at how much they made. Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man, um, he made $40 million on Age of Ultron. Scarlett Johansson made $20 million. Chris Evans made $6.9 million. Uh, Jeremy Renner made $6.1 million. Chris Hemsworth made $5.4 million. And Mark Ruffalo, or Ruffalo made $2.8 million. So interesting enough, uh, for supporting roles uh, on different type of movies, again, that's a big budget blockbuster tentpole film uh, for Marvel and for Disney. But for other types of films, like, say, The Wolf of Wall Street, Leonardo DiCaprio earned about $25 million for his performance, but his co-star, Jonah Hill, only made $60,000 on that particular film. And if you look at, like, a big-budget film, again, go back to the Marvel Universe, Iron Man 2, Mickey Rourke made $250,000. It's nice money, definitely. (laughs) I mean, sure, all of us would love to have an opportunity to make that kind of cash, uh, and in that kind of, you know, spotlight. But it's interesting enough to, to know this is how they get paid. It's a fee. It's a, a, a salary payout or a, a big payout. And again, only a few get to actually participate in the profit sharing of the film or take net points or some stock into the film, you know, uh, life of the film, that, that kind of thing. Because it all depends on how each actor or how each manager, uh, each agent is making the deal with the studios or the producers. But on just a very basic level, actors get paid a fee, and that's it. And they move on to the next project. 
for me on a very small scale up here and and not in Los Angeles, but a small market like Portland, Oregon as an actor, I get paid a fee. Like this is the fee for, you know, being in this commercial. Uh, this is a fee for being this industrial video or this is a fee for this television show. Depending on how the union rules are, you get to see residuals on certain jobs. But obviously it's nowhere near the the payout of like a 60000 or $250,000, um, you know, job. But that's it. That's how the money's made for actors and stars and you move on and you try to get the next job. Now for the writers and the directors and producers, um, we probably have to understand that Hollywood as a global system, is, the movie industry operates on the star system, which is why only a handful of movie stars actually command multi-million dollar deals. For writers and directors and producers, there's, their fees vary and are nowhere near the movie star level unless you're someone like Christopher Nolan who can command a $20 million payout. But for like your standard sort of working writer or working director, working producer, they earn fees anywhere between, uh, let's say, a writer. A writer will earn fees between $100,000 to a $1 million depending on how many drafts they have to write for a particular film. Director may earn anywhere from $250,000 to $10 million. Uh, interesting enough, I mean, Joss Whedon, the director of the, the first two Avenger movies, um, has been said that, you know, he made more money on his independent film or like short film, the, um, the, the Dr. Horrible Sing Song, I forget the exact uh, title of it, but because he was able to sell that directly to fans and have no middlemen, and, and it was it was so inexpensive to make. I think he made, you know, uh, a couple million on that, the sale of those DVDs, where his fee for Age of Ultron or his fee for the first Avengers film was probably around, you know, half a million, and that's it. <laughs> I mean, it's still amazing. But it's interesting to see that in the scope of like how big these movies get and how much money they bring in, that still the craftsmen and the artists and the executives working it, you know, sometimes they only get a sort of flat fee. And again, in the producers uh, of this world, they might earn fees between 250000 to $2 million. But some of them, depending how they arrange their deals, will get profit sharing. And that remains to be seen, how the, the language is written, which allows them to earn profits over the gross revenue or over the net. Now for agents and executives and below the line people, and so those of you who understand the terminology above the line, people that are above the line budget versus below the line budget, in every film budget, there is like kind of like basically two categories. Uh, the above the line is everybody we're talking about, movie stars, the writers, the directors, producers, the executives, where they don't always fit into a nice a standard union fee. It's what they negotiate. And sometimes the above the line cost of a film could be three times as much as the overall budget. And then we get into the below the line uh, budget line items. And these are the artisans and the craftsmen, uh, like your cinematographer, your, your line producer, or your unit uh, production manager. Um, your sound staff, your grips, your gaffers, your props, your production designers, your on-set teachers, and your on-set medical staff, and the union drivers who have to drive the trucks, and your caterers, and things like that. So these are the below-the-line costs, the BTL. And everyone's fees sometimes are dictated by the union rates. So if a, a film's budget is between you know, $20 million and $80 million, then there's a, there's a union rate that goes into paying the below-the-line costs. Um, but if a film is smaller, like it's only a million dollars, then the fees uh, get adjusted. So everyone working in the film industry 
is working towards getting their fees. So that's important to understand is that in order to make your money, you're hoping that the budget that you're working on is high enough that they can afford your higher fee. The same amount of work you put into a big budget film or big budget production versus a small budget production is about the same, but the payout obviously on a larger budget production is better for you, which is why producers, a lot of them are trying to get um, bigger budget um, productions made because their overall fees are going to be greater. Same amount of work trying to you know put together like a million dollar film versus like you know a $20 million film. Uh, so that's something to keep in mind in terms of when we reverse engineer all this stuff is where does everybody get paid? And they usually get paid through the fee system. Not a lot of profit sharing, only a very few individuals can arrange that in their deals uh, to arrange uh, profit sharing of, of the film. So that's it. Fees. We all are working towards our fees. Now, let's look at movie money for the indie filmmakers. So we've seen how Hollywood makes their money, right? But you can imagine uh, budgets for uber independent films that maybe range anywhere from $10,000 to $50,000. There really isn't much left over for fees to pay anybody, you know, a substantial living or anything that's comparable to a big budget production. So why are so many independent filmmakers still making films when they can't really pay themselves a reasonable fee? A lot of people do it for experience. Many aspiring filmmakers need the experience, you know, working on a film and to be in the production. Others do it for credits. Many aspiring filmmakers are looking for that IMDb credits. They need to build more of them up. Others might have hopes of being part of the profit sharing. In some cases, the aspiring filmmakers really believe in the film they are making or they are working on, and they hope to participate in any profits. And of course... If you are the spearhead, if you're the, the one who's writing, directing, editing, shooting the film, this is it. This is your stepping stone. Like you have this film you want to make and, you know, you hope to make your money back. You hope to make some profit. Um, but in some ways, it's there as a stepping stone to hopefully get more people attracted to what you're doing, that you can be part of these bigger budget productions so that your fees increase. And then you can build upon that, you know, one film after another film. So that's sort of the movie money for indie filmmakers. But now we can look into how do Hollywood movies make their money. So let's look back at the studio system. There are currently only six major movie studios. uh, Disney, Warner Brothers, Fox, Universal, Sony, and Paramount. On a smaller level, um, some might consider Lionsgate might be a seventh studio. But you'll see why the big six have the largest market share. One of the important factors that all these Hollywood studios have in common is that they are part of a larger corporate conglomerate, uh, and they are publicly traded companies. And this is really, really important. The major studios are publicly traded, which means cash flow. Back in 1986, when Steve Jobs uh, had just been fired from Apple, (laughs) it's interesting, he went on to purchase Pixar from George Lucas, who was going through a really nasty divorce and needed to sell off properties under the Lucasfilm banner. And Pixar started under Lucasfilm. Steve Jobs buys Pixar from George Lucas in 1986. And for many, many years, for almost like 10 years, Steve Jobs had to float cash to support Pixar. And they pivoted from, you know, originally they were selling software, then to producing commercials, to eventually doing what they've always wanted to do, which was to make the first computer-generated animated feature film with Toy Story. 
Now, predicting Toy Story would be a huge success, Steve Jobs made the move to turn Pixar from a production company into a publicly traded studio. Now, why is this important? Well, here's an excerpt from uh, the book by Pixar's president, Ed Catmull, in his book called Creativity, Inc. And in uh, in the book, he explains the inherent business model of Pixar and how Steve Jobs needed to change that. And here's the quote from the book. In 1995, when Steve Jobs was trying to convince us that we should go public, one of his key arguments was that we would eventually make a film that failed at the box office, and we needed to be prepared financially for that day. Going public would give us the capital to fund our own projects and thus to have more say about where we were headed, but it also would give us a buffer that could sustain us through failure. Steve's feelings was that Pixar's survival could not depend solely on the performance of each and every movie. The underlying logic of this reasoning shook me. We were going to screw up. It was inevitable. So, interesting enough, the famed entertainment lawyer Schuler M. Moore in his book, The Biz, explains this. He says that majority of production companies, people that form a film production company to like make one film and hopefully that's a success that leads to the next production of the next film and so on and so on, Majority of these production companies go bankrupt. They go out of business. A lot of them do not have sustainability if you look at the history of Hollywood. The important factor here is that because Steve Jobs came from the tech world, seeing how they had to raise capital you know, by bringing Apple to um, be publicly traded, they had you know, a cash flow to weather the storm when a lot of their products weren't working. If you think back to like Apple's history, they've had some products that just tank. They didn't do very well, but other products did really well. So you can imagine that if a production company was relying on each film to do exceptionally well, it was inherently flawed. It was going, they were going to fail. There was going to be a production, a release of some sort of movie that wasn't going to do as well. Uh, just, just like in the tech world and in the business world. So you need to sort of have that cash flow to, um, sustain and weather the storm. And so it's really interesting to understand that because, the six major studios, where do they get their money? Where do they get the money to fund all these you know, mega-budget movies? Well, they're publicly traded, and they have a cash flow. They have a reservoir. Obviously, their incentive is to appease the shareholders, so there's a whole different world, you know, what business they're in, but they have to keep the value of their intellectual property up in order for the stock to keep at a high level in order to keep that cash flow coming in so they can continue making the big budget films. The more failures they have, then the stock would plummet and the cash flow would reduce. But you can imagine if every studio was dependent on the success of every film going out, they would never survive, which is why they put the burden on these production companies, which end up going bankrupt anyway. All right, so now we can look at Hollywood accounting. So we know where money comes from for the Hollywood studios. They are publicly traded. Uh, They have a massive amount of cash flow coming in. They will pay all the talent through the budget of the film. It's through fees, and only very few uh, individuals get to share in the profits. So what Hollywood does, or the Hollywood studio system does, is trying to prevent as much uh, royalty payouts as possible. This is called Hollywood accounting. So the... The major movie studios leverage the value of their intellectual property, the IP library, to raise capital, as we mentioned. The studios have an incentive to please their shareholders. So that's 
where their motivation is. And a lot of them just don't want to get fired. So a lot of them have a hard time saying yes to anything because in the world of Hollywood, a lot of people just are trying to keep their jobs at least the executive side, on the executive end of things. Anyhow, if they can keep the price of the stock up, no one will care what type of films the studio makes. It might not be high art, but they don't care. The shareholders don't care as long as their shares aren't dropping in value. So the myth about Hollywood is that Hollywood movies don't make money. <laughs> so how does this happen? I mean, many refer to this as Hollywood accounting or Hollywood math. So as we mentioned, the movie studios approve and allocate funds to make the film, but the creation of the film is only part of the equation for the studio side of things. Prints and advertising, P&A, you might have heard this before. Traditionally, P&A, for prints and advertising, referred to the cost of film prints that would be shipped out to all the theaters across the world. Um, the cost of duplicating in the film lab, you know, these big film canisters, was expensive. And then you had to put them into shipping containers and you had to ship them out overseas or put them on trucks and send them out to the domestic markets. So, of course, the word advertisement in prints and advertising would refer to the marketing costs it takes to get the word out about the film coming out. In a recent article with the screenwriter of Logan, Scott Frank, he shared his perspective with Business Insider about the, the change of the economics in the film industry. And in the article, it says, the economics are different, so the process is different. Uh, movies now cost a huge amount of money to market. You may make a movie for $10 million, but if it's a movie the studio cares about, they're going to spend over $30 million to market it. So the marketing costs are huge. Marketing has become sort of the church of the business. So that's sort of something to keep in mind of how the studio system works. Now we can go into how movies don't make money. In 2011, The Atlantic published an article, a really great article, entitled How Hollywood Accounting Can Make a $450 Million Movie Unprofitable. <laughs> so here's a little glimpse of it. Uh, the amazing glimpse into the dark side of the force that is Hollywood economics, the actor who played Darth Vader still has not received residuals from the 1983 film Return of the Jedi because the movie, which ranks 15th in U.S. box office history, still has no technical profits to distribute. How can a movie that grows $475 million on a $32 million budget not turn a profit? It comes down to what is called Tinseltown Accounting, or Hollywood math. <laughs> the article will actually go on to explain how all movies form their own corporation. And you might have heard this before, that every film needs to file itself as a limited liability company, LLC. The costs that go into setting up the production must funnel everything through this corporation, this LLC. It's sort of like a protective fence. And every film that is made has their own separate LLC. So you funnel all your costs into making the film through this corporation. And in an interview with uh, Edward J. Epstein, author of The Hollywood Economist, he clarifies what these LLCs do for the filmmakers and the studios. Essentially, each movie is set up as its own corporation. And any m money that is lost on that particular picture is really that of the corporation. And so in his case study, it was uh, the film called Gone in 60 Seconds with Nicolas Cage and Angelina Jolie. So they would set up a company called like Gone in 60 Seconds LLC or Incorporated or whatever it might be called. 
And that corporation or that LLC will pay all their fees to a major studio like Disney and everyone else connected to the movie. And those fees, as Epstein, Epstein says, are really where the money's at. And so, you know, Derek Thompson of The Atlantic explained it in a much fun way, a much <laughs> to, to understand the, the, the way the accounting works. So now imagine you're running a lemonade stand with your buddy Steve. Your mom says you have to share half your profits with your sister, but you don't want to. So you pretend your buddy Steve is an actual corporation, an LLC, and you call him like Steve Inc. or Steve LLC. Now Steve will charge you rent for the stand, the spoon, the sugar, the lemonade mixture, etc. So when you get back to your mom and you say, dang mom, I don't have any profits. I had to pay it all to Steve Incorporated or Steve LLC. So from the outside perspective, you can say that the money's all gone, but it's actually good as your own money because it's in your best friend's pocket. (laughs) So far, we've explored how executives and artists and everyone who's making the film gets paid through fees. That's what everybody's working for. What is my fee? And then we looked at how studios are able to finance such high-priced films through such large amounts of capital supplied by publicly traded stocks. They have a cash flow. They have a large amount of cash flow to finance these types of films. And then the studios prevent paying out large profits to people like executives and producers and, and, you know, uh, actors and so on by paying themselves fees for prints and advertisement. Before moving on a little bit further, to dig a little deeper into this concept of how a movie studio pays themselves fees for prints and advertisement... There's a great case study um, by The Atlantic, again, which dealt with the Hollywood accounting of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, where, you know, that that film made tons and tons of money. But what happens is a studio will then have a subsidiary that handles their prints and advertisement. So you might have like Warner Brothers might be the the main studio that's financing the, the, the picture to make the picture. But then they are required to hire this subsidiary of Warner Brothers to handle the prints and advertisement. And within those fees to pay for prints and advertisement, Warner Brothers and the subsidiary can jack up the fees enormously. So it actually always looks like the film never made any money because the producers or the, the, the arrangement of the production fees have to go and pay the fees of this advertisement company. <laughs> it's just the way the racket works. So for distribution deals that are set up like this for independent filmmakers, well, you know, if you are an independent filmmaker and you're lucky enough to even get a distribution deal offered to you in your film, the distributor may actually offer you a minimum guarantee, MG, or an an advance. This advance actually has to get paid back with the profits of your film when it's released to the market. These kind of deals are not unique to the film industry. Actually, the music industry has its own set of problems that have an amazing semblance to the movie industry. In fact, the 2012 documentary Artifact, which follows the legal dispute between Jared Leto's rock band 30 Seconds to Mars and the record label, their record label, EMI, which actually filed a $30 million breach of contract lawsuit against the band in 2008, after 30 Seconds to Mars tried to exit the contract over royalty disputes. So this is sort of this documentary. So what you're actually, you're going to get a chance to listen to it. Here's an excerpt from the movie, the documentary, where Jared Leto and uh, other executives and other band um, famous rock musicians are talking about what it's like to make a music publishing deal with the record industry. 
And if you listen closely, you'll hear a lot of similarities to the independent filmmaker making a deal with a distribution company. So sit back and enjoy this quick excerpt from the movie Artifact and how the music industry works. I've never heard of a label that doesn't screw an artist. You talk to anybody who uh, audits their label, they're always owed money. And if nothing else, usually the label holds back enough money that your cost of auditing is such that you won't do it. So that's the business model, is screwing the artists. Their financial practices have been shady since the beginning of time. It's been grandfathered in since the 50s and 60s when rock and roll really started. In the 50s, they were screwing the artists then, but there was much, much less money involved. Then as you start to go into the 60s and 70s, the hit that ratio is so bad that they're saying, hey, you know, we can't pay the hit artist because he's paying for all the bad artists. It goes back to how the music industry was set up in the very early stages of the recording industry. Taking advantage of uneducated, easily swayed artists who don't really care about the money. Unfortunately, there's a lot of fallout with, um, still, with bands getting paid, you know. We had to sue our label to get paid. They've created this strange, convoluted system that you have to be a lawyer to really understand, or a mathematician. A typical record deal is structured something like this. The record label gives in advance, say, $250,000 to the artist to record an album. The artist then records the album. Suppose that the album sells 500,000 copies at $10 each, yielding $5 million. The record label then takes their cut out of the $5 million, typically 85% of the total sales, leaving the artist with $750,000. But before the artist receives any payments, the label first deducts the advance. In addition, the record label recoups other costs such as recording costs, half the promotion costs, half the video costs, and tour support. This leaves the artist $425,000 in debt to the record label. And then this debt gets carried on to the next album, the next album, and the next album. I don't know if most people have seen long-form contracts. They're insane. And there's all these little, these little things thrown in. It's kind of like legislating, you know, legislature for a government. They put up this big issue, but underneath that issue, there's like 17 other little laws that they threw in that they're not talking about. So when you say yes to this one thing, you're actually saying yes to like 45 other things. There's, there's a worse one. They used to have damage fees with digital downloads. Digital downloads, like at first they were doing that, like they just trying to get away with murder, you know? It's just like, let's leave it in there. Let's see if the lawyer sees it kind of thing. Some other hidden items that the contract includes are packaging costs. They deduct up to 25% of the artist's cut, known as a royalty, to cover the expense of plastic cases and artwork. This cost is even administered to digital downloads where packaging is non-existent. 10% is deducted to cover breakage costs during shipping. This started in the vinyl era, continued when CDs replaced vinyl, and still applies today with digital downloads. The 10% free goods deduction is an antiquated system where retailers purchase 100 albums but are given an additional 10 albums at no charge. Since the artist is only paid on albums sold, they are not compensated for those free albums. This deduction still continues even in a digitally dominated market. Artists generate so much money for so many people that have nothing to do with the creative process at all. 
All right, welcome back. Uh, as you can see, it was kind of an interesting listen, right? And if you want to see, you know, the actual video interview, uh, just head on over to filmtrooper.com forward slash 129, um, where you can read this article. You can see some of the videos that are there and all the show notes that go hand in hand with this particular episode. So now let's look at how a distribution company or a studio actually makes money because they've got to make money too, right? And this, <laughs> obviously, this is the whole point of the topic of the of the episode of how movies make money. Uh, we're going to dive into windowing, movie windowing. So from the studio's standpoint, they will normally exploit the license of their movies through these distribution channels in the form of windowing. So let's take a film. It gets made... Uh, they're putting all this money behind the behind the advertising and the marketing campaign, and the film will lease their movie to theater owners. And this is the first stage of the window release. Now, the lease could earn the theater owners. Now, we're talking about like the theater chains. It might be your AMC, your Regal. It might be a art house, mom and pop type shop. But they actually have to lease the movie from the studios. And in the deal... Usually for the first four weeks of a movie's release, like a big blockbuster movie, uh, the theater owners only get about 20 to 25% take of the box office. About 80%, 75% is actually going back to the movie studios. This means that the studios earn most of their revenue at the box office within those first few weeks of release, right? So after a few weeks, if the movie's still in the theaters, the theater's owners can actually start earning upwards to 80% revenue from the lease of a studio movie. But unfortunately, at this time, most audiences have actually stopped coming to the theater to see the movie at all, unless it's some sort of phenomenon like the Titanic or uh, that film was in theaters like weeks upon weeks. Interesting enough, when I was working at a mom-and-pop video shop when I was younger, you know, sort of like a, a blockbuster or Hollywood video, I would see these new releases come in where the mom-and-pop sh- video shop had to spend upwards like $150 per movie for a VHS, you know, cassette. So they would, that, there's a reason why when you, back in the day, you might go and rent a movie and it was like $5.99 for, you know, the first for new releases or, you know, $3.99 for new releases. But if a movie's been out long enough, you actually might see it get to a place where it's like only a dollar ninety nine rental or ninety nine cents rental. So the the economics there is that something like Blockbuster would show up like you know new releases and it was like five ninety nine or whatever it was uh, because they needed to get as many rentals uh, as possible within the first couple of weeks to make back whatever the hundred fifty to two hundred dollars per uh, cassette that they were leasing or they bought from the studios. As soon as, you know, several weeks had passed and the movie's heat, people were stopped renting it as much, then they could reduce the price down to a $1.99 rental or $2.99 rental. Or you've seen it before, like in Blockbuster, if you, you know, around the, if you were living there in those days, you might see the bargain bin where you can actually buy the film for like 10, 15 bucks or something like that in the, in the VHS format. So that's how they would make their money over time because, you know, they had a large payout of $200 uh, uh, per VHS tape that they need to get it paid back via high-cost rental prices. But anybody knows the, the world of Blockbuster, they made mo- most of their money off late fees. So they would penalize anybody who was coming in late and just, up, you know, charge you another 5 bucks or whatever it was for late fees. So it's interesting to see that even in the theatrical uh, deal making between the studio systems and the theater owners, there was something very similar. So going back to that analogy, you know, theater owners know very well what business they're in. Actually, in the article from uh, Movie Blog, 
uh, back in 2007 about the economics of the movie theater, one theater owner stated, we're not in the movie business, we're in the candy business. So a lot of these theater owners know that they are in the business of selling popcorn. That's how they make their money. So movie studios make a portion of their money back by releasing a film to theaters. First couple of weeks, they might get 75 to 80% return. And then after that window has closed, where not many people are going to see the movie in the theaters, a studio will look to make more money by getting the film leased to both the domestic and international TV markets. So after the TV window has closed, after, say, the movie is played, you know, for a special two-week stint or a one-night-only type thing on television, and they made a deal to lease the film out to a, a network for X amount of dollars, the studio will then release the film to the home video market via DVDs and Blu-ray discs and, you know, back in the day, VHS tapes. And then there's right on the heels of the home video release, the studios release the film onto things like cable video on demand or transactional video on demand, which is like iTunes, and or subscription video on demand, which is like Netflix and Amazon Prime. Each one of these windows releases provides a revenue opportunity for the studios to make their money back. And as we've learned, any profits that they make from these release window strategies will be written off as marketing expenses to show that the film has never made any money. <laughs> so that's it. That's the Hollywood math. Interesting enough, we've seen sort of a collapse of these windows. You know, unfortunately, not every film is going to get a chance to benefit from these traditional windows like the studio movies do. So for films on the independent side, producers are seeing these windows collapse, obviously. In an article from Variety, famed indie movie producer Jason Blum of, you know, Paranormal Activity, The Purge, uh, Whiplash, you know, films like that, he stated that, I think there are some movies that will stay in traditional movies and most movies where the windowing will collapse. So you may see this happening more and more through the release strategies, something like day and date or premieres that go straight to video on demand. Um, With the day and date release, Essentially, it means that a film will be in theaters, some select theaters, at the same time being made available on video on demand. So you might see it on iTunes or Amazon. One of the benefits of a day and date release is that the publicity surrounding the theatrical release also benefits the VOD platforms. That's the concept there. But the downside to these window collapsing is something like when Radius uh, Time Warner Company released the 2014 sci-fi film Snowpiercer. Uh, via day and date. It was met with controversy, of course, because the rule of thumb is that the major chains won't play films with less than a three-month window between theatrical and ancillary, but that many smaller circuits and independent theaters will play these type of day and date films. Independent art house theater owners have a somewhat cynical view of the whole process, too, when they basically said, Theatrical distribution, both Hollywood blockbusters and art house films, are only vehicles to promote VOD and DVD sales and streaming. The blockbusters make most of their budgets overseas, and theatrical release is mandated in order to garner award nominations and wins, which again, serve mostly for DVD sales. And it's interesting, because you see this, you probably heard, you know, reports where Netflix and Amazon, especially Netflix, because... They were trying to get their films into theaters to qualify for the award season, for the Oscars. And when they were, you know, met with resistance from the major chains, well, Netflix went around and just bought some, a a smaller theater chain. (laughs) Now they can, you know, present their films in theaters in some of the major cities, New York and Los Angeles, 
to be qualified for the, the award season. And this is the first time in this past uh, Oscar race we saw um, the film Manchester by the Sea was picked up by Amazon Studios. And it was the first time one of these type of tech companies on the outside of Hollywood have had a film in sort of the award season. So there's all these technicality things that go on to it, but it's true. A lot of the theatrical premieres or the theatrical runs of these films are designed to be like a loss leader. They're going to take a loss, but they need it to promote, to use as an advertisement to drive both VOD and DVD sales and streaming sales. On a side note about Snowpiercer being released day and date um, by Radius, the Weinstein company, uh, this is a really fun sort of side note to understand more about movie money. Now, we talk about investors, you know, what kind of people actually invest in movies? Um, I'm mentioning like you get private equity, you might get like a rich dentist, you might get somebody who owns a car dealership and so on. Uh, a lot of times the incentive for people that want to invest into a movie sometimes comes down to just a unique opportunity to walk the red carpet. <laughs> like if that's in the line item, you've probably heard um, some past interviews in my podcast uh, filmmakers, when they've got money, when they got somebody to invest in their movie, that person, all they wanted to do was have an opportunity to walk the red carpet, or sometimes they have a uh, you know, a daughter or a son that they want to have an opportunity to be in the movie. Uh, that happens quite often, actually. But the real investors, like the real professional investors of film, someone like the Weinstein Company, how do they stay in business for so long? A lot of these guys hold to the principle of last one in first one out. And that means that you have a, you know, a number of investors that come in. It takes, you know, money to get started for the film to get going, maybe, you know, development funds, and then the actual money to be raised to do the um, uh, production of it. But when it's all done, you still need, you know, on an independent side, we're talking about the independent side, you still need money to get released and distributed. You know, you need the P&A, you need the prints and advertisement money to be funneled in so that your film can be released on a wide scale. So in the case and point of Snowpiercer, the Radius, the Weinstein company, came in um, as sort of the last investors. They didn't fund the, the, they didn't finance or fund the movie, the production of the movie. That was well on its way. So when the film was shown to them, like it may be an early level of like the script level or near the, the final cut, uh, interesting enough, I mean, the, the producers wanted a wide release for Snowpiercer, but the Weinstein company saw it and said, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a great script, saw the footage, um, but it's very different. It won't go wide. So why would we spend $25 million on prints and ads that would actually, you know, disappoint an audience? That's what they say. But the reality is, is that it's too risky for the Weinstein company to risk $25 million in P&A when they may not only they may only make like ten million dollars in the box office returns. So because they control so much, because they are coming in with their name, Radius, the Weinstein Company, as the last investors in to to upfront the cost of prints and advertisement, they sort of get to dictate the terms of how a film is going to be released. So when they said, well, let's just do day and date, because they'll make you know uh, we don't have to spend that much money on. Uh, no money basically on prints because we're just going digital. Now, maybe a few prints because you know a few theaters might need it, but mostly the advertisement might be very little. Uh, yet we will benefit from this unique opportunity to make you know a couple million dollars um, when it hits um, video on demand. Now you think about it: how much did the Weinstein Company actually 
invest into Snowpiercer. Maybe say, let's say it was like $5 million to do a very modest sort of advertisement because they're not spending money on prints and they got all of this free press because they, they use the, um, the opportunity to have like the trade papers talk about this unique thing that they were doing. So say they only invest $5 million to release the film. Um, they're, the one, they're, the, they're going to be the first ones to get their money out when the, re, the revenue starts coming in from video on demand. So in one week's time being on video on demand, the Weinstein Company, uh, through Radius, they made about like $2 million off Snowpiercer. And they were continue to make you know a few more bucks after that as well. The overall concept here is that they have very little risk going in. If all the money and other investors had already paid to make the movie happen, and something like a savvy investor that comes in last, but know they're going to get their money out first, some something like the Weinstein Company, then they don't have as much risk, and they they can dictate the terms of how they're going to get their money back. So they make the deal, and they're going to you know make a chunk of change coming back because that cash flow that comes in from the video on demand will go straight into the Weinstein Company. They'll get paid their money plus their fees. And then once everything is done in the contract, later down the line, if the film makes any more money, that money will trickle back down to the other investors. So if you were the first investor in, you're not going to see your money you know, come out of it until very, very late in the game or in, you're in, in line, basically, if anybody understands the investment type thing. So I've actually met some individuals that work with high net worth investors, and they only make sure that they invest in a film at the very end. So it's very hard for somebody to be the first one to come in to invest. They actually rely on uh, people like rich dentists that just want to be part of it. Uh, the savvy investors come in last. So last one in, first one out. And so that's a little side story about uh, Snowpiercer and other ways you know movie money works and how investors work and why certain companies are able to stick around for a long time. And piggybacking off this concept of low risk but try to get high reward you know, a lot of distribution companies sort of work this way. You know, when they when they are accumulating and making deals with filmmakers to try to represent their film, in a lot of ways, they're grabbing films with a strong genre. So say if you had a horror film and you get picked up by a distribution company, they may actually take your horror film and package it with 10 other horror films that they licensed, they made agreements with that they were going to distribute. Then they bundle that all together. And so now there's a dozen, you know, so or 10 horror movies that they have in their bundle that they will go to territory by territory and say, look, not only do you, you can get one you know, movie from us, you'll get 10 horror movies from us. And that bundle price, the returns you'll get from that are watered down because it's not just your movie that's sold to like France or South America. It's your movie plus a bunch of other movies they bundle together. And if your movie doesn't perform well, if it's not selling well, they, you know, they have this huge library of other movies that they're working with. They just move on to the next batch of movies they have, and they either sell it individually or they, they bundle it together in hopes to try to maximize as much revenue as possible without any risk involved. Now, if you put yourself in the shoes of a distributor, you can imagine, like, I don't make any movies, but I have tons of filmmakers just making movies left and right. And all I do is make an agreement with them. And my job is to try to sell it to all these different territories. And, you know, I don't have to sell it for the, the budget of the film. I just have to make a deal. And if the, if the deal covers our marketing and our travel expenses, plus our overhead, you know, what it costs to run our company, plus whatever profit margin we decide 
um, is beneficial. You're basically leveraging the backs of artists and their work that you get to make broker deals the way you want them to be brokered. And if they don't work out, then you just move on to the next batch of filmmakers or artists that come through and you do, you know, rinse and repeat. Uh, it's kind of interesting in, in the way of like, if you look at extreme sports, if you follow like snowboarding or skateboarding, you have all these kids that want to be the next rock star in extreme sports. So a company then comes and sponsors them and says, okay, you know, here's a clothing deal. Here's like your skateboard deal. Here's like all these, you know, for a limited time to represent so that we can advertise and sell our clothing, our lifestyle products to the world. And we piggyback off the talent of all these amazing athletes. But, you know, when an athlete gets hurt or they get too old, the contract, you know, dries up. No, there's no value to them anymore by selling products. So they find the next young person and they sign them to a contract and rinse and repeat. But the, the corporation still stays intact in terms of the lifestyle, something like Nike or Hurley or whatever it might be. But the kids coming through um, are just recycled. And the very same thing is the concept of the filmmaking world. A distribution company might stay around for a while, but you know, filmmakers will come and go, come and go. And they're just leveraging off the work of filmmakers, but they don't have to put as much risk in as possible. So if you kind of put your mind around that, if you, put your, if you wear the shoes of a distributor, you understand sort of their perspective and how they make money. And you also understand the perspective of how a savvy film investor makes money by saying, I am only going to come in at the end and I get to dictate the terms as long as I know I get my money out first and I can stay in business. So that's a little side note about this world of last one in, first one out. Now, we get into really how movies make money. And that is probably summed up in this um, quote from George Lucas when he said, all the money is in the action figures. <laughs> and that is the truth. It's merchandising. And the, the, the honest truth is Hollywood is not in the movie business. They are in the business of license exploitation. So when a studio owns the license to any intellectual property, IP, they can exploit it in a myriad of ways. Um, George Lucas famously retained the rights to all ancillary and merchandise rights for Star Wars. 20th Century Fox wanted to retain the rights to the film. George Lucas said, that's fine as long as I would take a, a lower fee. He chose not to take a higher directing fee or producing fee, writer fee for Star Wars. He took a lower fee in exchange that he would retain the rights to the ancillary and merchandise merchandising, the toys rights of Star Wars. So what happens? Lucas builds an empire off the sale of toys. <laughs> and Hollywood studios have actually caught on over the years and they realize they can make more money in the sale of merchandise. So these are revenue opportunities. You have the theatrical premiere or the theatrical run that basically serves as a, a loss leader, a promotion. And some of the bigger movies will actually make their money back or you know a chunk of money back. But eventually, when they get into the other windowing opportunities, television rights to uh, home video, to streaming, to you know VOD, that's all to generate really the profits to make the budget back. Anything, any profits that come after that will be written off as an expense against the subsidiary marketing company that the studio owns. What they really want to do is create these universes and, and, and have an opportunity to sell you t-shirts and toys and games and things like that. And that's really where the money comes in for these big studios. So the question is like, well, what about the independent filmmaker? I mean, we don't have a studio system. We're not 
you know, publicly traded. So how do we even operate in that world? In very rare cases, an independent filmmaker can earn millions from their work, but not without help. You know, case in point, if you listen back to my interview with paranormal activity creator Orrin Pelly, he shares with us a blow-by-blow account of what had to happen to make that film a global phenomenon. And you can listen to that episode back in number 119. That's at filmtrooper.com forward slash 119. Or just go to the show notes of this particular episode and you will get the link there. So again, many independent films still need assistance from the studios to bring the film to a wider audience in order to earn a greater revenue or at least maybe a greater revenue for the studio. <laughs> I mean, an independent film producer may only get what they get in terms of just making the money back to pay the budget. Now let's explore the world of indie Hollywood versus uber independent filmmakers. So any film made outside of the major studios is actually considered independent because you know it's not being financed through the corporations, through the, the stockholders and things like that. As independent film executive and past podcast guest, uh, Scott Kirkpatrick, um, he referenced this world as indie Hollywood. Basically, anything that's not being played in the studio system, he calls the indie Hollywood. Basically, this is the world of the international film markets, like Cannes Film Market or the American Film Market. And they have a different set of standards when it comes to raising film funds and selling films, obviously. These independent films don't have a publicly traded company behind them to finance the budget of any of their films, so they must find their money through various outlets such as pre-sales or pre-orders from foreign territories, meaning that a producer will have relationships with different uh, film buyers in different territories to say, look, I've got this film with this star, it's this genre, If when we finish it, do you think we could uh, make a deal? And maybe a territory in South America says, that's fine, I can give you a million dollars for that. And maybe another territory in Japan says, I'll give you um, three million, and so on and so on. So the, the money that the, the deals that they make in these small, you know, selling off to territories to territories, actually, as Scott explained in his podcast interview, that he goes to these markets, he makes these deals, he comes back with all these, like, basically signed agreements that he's got to organize and uh, create, like, this database to show to uh, a bank that they're, they're going to get a loan against. So a producer will actually then take a loan against these pre-sale promises to finance the budget of the film. And those of you who've listened to me before, you've heard the story, which is how these independent producers make their money, like really make big chunks of money, is that even though they might get the promise, they might sell off uh, the promise of a film being made to different territories and they have these agreements in place and then they actually take a loan out against these agreements, um, say it's like a $2 million uh, film they're going to make, these independent producers, they're only going to make the film for 500000 because they're going to pocket like a million and a half dollars. And that's their, what they consider their fee because they did all the legwork to make the deal happen. And so when they hire a director, a writer, and the actors, it's all under the umbrella of a $500,000 film. So that's how they kind of make their money. And then they find other ways to, to finance the film through like government tax rebate programs to find as much free money as possible, which is why you'll hear uh, people going to make films all the time in Vancouver, Canada, or uh, Atlanta, Georgia, or New Orleans, or New Mexico, and sometimes Detroit, which is why you don't see a lot of production sometimes on the independent side happening in places like Los Angeles, because there's, there's not really a great tax rebate program to get free money. <laughs> and then the other one is the private equity, you know, filling in, this might be the rich dentist scenario, you know, or somebody owns a car dealership to finance the film. 
Uh, these types of independent films, you know, make modest returns sometimes through a variation of distribution strategies that are based on the studio system. But some of these independent films, their release strategies rely on sometimes paying a service company to release the film in uh, cities like New York and Los Angeles to qualify for the award season. Now, a service company is essentially, uh, that's all they do is like you pay them a fee and they will place your movie into theaters. Uh, you're still responsible for the marketing and advertising to get people to the theater, but you can get your film into theaters. You can also use the service of a company like Tug, which is like a variation of one of these uh, uh, service companies. Anyhow, so you can get your film into uh, one of these theaters, but you kind of have to pay to play to some extent. Uh, that's one of the release strategies of these like smaller independent film distribution companies. And then you use a limited theatrical release as a promotional tool that you're going to sell you know, your DVDs and video on demands uh, and streaming sales. But since the film was pre-sold to various foreign territories in order to take out a loan against the pre-orders, this will be part of the money earned anyway. Any additional TV, cable, video on demand, and foreign territory deals that can be made after the film is made can be a source of additional revenue. And just to clarify, again, it's the film has already been paid. Like if you get all these pre-sales in place um, and promises, you know the film gets made, and then you know you collect on the promise notes from all these different foreign territories. You're, you've done your business because again, if a film produ- in these independent film producers are pocketing a million and a half. Uh, from a two million dollar deal, and they're only making the film for five hundred thousand. You know they made their money. They're just now they're just looking for the next deal. If they release it to the world and it makes a little bit of profit, you know, cool for them. You know, <laughs> but I don't think they're really banking on it. Their world of making money is making one deal after another deal after another deal. That's sort of how that world works. So usually these type of independent films are stepping stones for the producers, the writers, the directors, anyone who's involved in these smaller films to try to get you know, success enough in them that they can be part of a bigger budget production. Again, bigger budget means higher fees that they can pay themselves. So everything is dependent on the budget in order to pay you a comfortable fee. (laughs) Now, what about the uber independent filmmaker? And this is the new breed of filmmakers who aren't traveling to the film markets and who aren't trying to make these larger deals. These are the filmmakers who have access to equipment to make a film right now. Where do these filmmakers make their money? We can take a look at the never-ending crowdfunding cycle. So for most Uber independent filmmakers, they must utilize crowdfunding to raise like something like $2,000 to $15,000 to make their films. If you look closely to these crowdfunding campaigns, they reach their $2,000 to $15,000 but if you really look closely, they only have about 25 to 65 backers total to make this happen. This means that if a film was sold online, only about 25 to 65 people would buy it. So the cycle works like this. The Uber independent filmmaker raises the $10,000 through crowdfunding to make their film. There isn't enough room in the budget to pay anyone a living wage, obviously. So the film gets made and gets accepted into maybe a handful of unknown film festivals. No distribution offers are made to the film. The filmmakers will send the digital copies to their crowdfunding backers. uh, And the filmmakers may self-distribute the film on DVD and video-on-demand platforms like VHX slash Vimeo. Now, if the film is priced at a $3 rental and or a $10 purchase price, then the average sale price might be 7 bucks. In order to make $10,000 back, the filmmaker needs to make over 1,400 transactions. Again, They only got like 65 backers to help them make the film. 
it's a huge stretch to try to get 65 people to buy your film, let alone try to get 14 over 1,400 people to buy your film just to make your $10,000 back. But again, since the money was raised by crowdfunding, there isn't any obligation to pay anyone back as in the case like indie, indie Hollywood, which they have real investors they are beholden to. So when you're dealing with like larger budgets and like real investors that expect their money back or some profits and things like that, you have that added level of stress to deal with. With the world of the small crowdfunding world, you're sort of just giving the money to make your film and then you give your, the, the finished movie to your backers and, and then you realize you're not getting distribution deals or things not quite happening and you do self-distribution and you realize you're not going to even make the $10,000 back because it's really difficult to get you know 1,000 transactions on anything online. When a filmmaker is unable to make over 1,400 transactions, the filmmaker will then return to the crowdfunding well again, and they will try to raise another $10,000 for the next project. And the cycle continues until hopefully there's a breakthrough. Again, I don't want to end this episode on like a Debbie Downer. <laughs> I, I, I'm actually just fascinated by the whole, how the whole system works. And just get, it helps me get perspective of where I fit into this whole thing. And maybe it's designed to help you as well understand where you fit into this whole scheme of things when you're trying to make your film. And I'm excited. I encourage you actually to check out the free video series. If you haven't yet, uh, over at filmtrooper.com, I actually offer this free three-part video series called The New Adventures in Film Distribution. And in part one of the video series, we explore the known world of film distribution. And in part two, we explore the realities of the video on-demand landscape. And in part three, we uncover the true elixir for the uber-independent filmmaker. And we explore this concept of like, well, how does the uber independent filmmaker sell their film for $100 online as opposed to a $3 rental? And again, you can get this free video series. All you have to do is just go to filmtrooper.com and you will see like on the front page, like there it is. It's just sign up for the free video series or go to this blog post in the very end of those blog posts or this, this episode guide, filmtrooper.com forward slash 129 and you can sign up. It's again, it's free. I think it's a lot of value and a lot of people got uh, a lot of great feedback out of it. Again, if you haven't yet checked it out, I encourage you to do so because uh, it helps sort of address sort of these things that I just uh, brought up in today's episode about how, you know, movies actually make money. And if you have already seen it and you got a lot of value out of it, you know, please let me know or rewatch it again. Because, you know, anything with information, it's it's helpful to, we kind of need to be retold it over and over until like sinks in. You're like, ah, and then ask ourselves those questions of like, now, now that I see the big picture, now I see how all this stuff works. Now I understand how movies actually make money, how the studio system works, how the indie Hollywood version works, and then how the world of the uber independent filmmaker might work. You have clarity. And then so when you're moving forward with your career and your game plan of getting your film out there and trying to make money back or make a, a large profit from it, um, at least there's potential new business models that we can all learn from. And that's what I wanted to share with the, the free video series. And that's all I got for today. So <laughs> it's just me solo uh, kind of pontificating and doing some research on this topic. And I hope you really enjoyed it. And I hope you actually got a lot of value out of it. And, you know, of course, if you did, please leave a rating and review on iTunes for me or whatever, um, you know, podcast app you listen to, uh, I, uh, Film Trooper on. It'd be very, very helpful. Until the next episode, I will see you next time. Film Trooper, filmmaking freedom for the independent.